Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now, here's your host, Tom Singer. This is Making Waves at Sea Level the podcast for those who shake things up in business and are focused on growth and success. This episode is produced in partnership with the Austin Technology Council. ATC is a 30-year-old association that is focused on promoting and facilitating the growth of technology companies in Central Texas. Over the past three decades, the business ecosystem in Austin has changed, and ATC is actively changing too. Learn more at austintechnologycouncil.org. My name is Tom Singer, and I have hosted this podcast for eight years and over 725 episodes. I am also the new CEO at the Austin Technology Council. While this podcast is not fully focused on local companies, in the coming months, I'm going to be interviewing leaders from around Austin and some of the solution provider companies that serve the tech industry so that we can see how Austin is changing and growing. And today, I am happy to welcome to the show, Sarah Jones Simmer. Hey, Sarah, welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level. Thanks, Tom. So nice to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. And today, we're going to talk about having the courage to show up in business and in life. And you have a really eclectic background. You've done so many things and, and your story is so interesting. I thought I would start by asking you, just give me a little bit of your background. Tell everybody who you are and, and how you got to where you are to be the CEO of Found. Yeah, thank you for that. I definitely have a bit of an unusual background. First and foremost, I'm a mom. I've got two little ones. One just started kindergarten, one started third grade. Um, I'm also a daughter. I try to be a great big sister. And I've got an amazing partner who is an architect here in town. I grew up in New Jersey. I actually went to music school to a conservatory. My bachelor's degree is in flute performance. Uh, that qualifies you to do a very narrow set of things like play <laughs> an orchestra. I loved the rigor around music and practice and the discipline that it took. And I think it actually relates a bit to the topic that we're going to talk about later, which is having the courage to show up. Standing in front of a room and performing with just you and a flute is a really humbling and vulnerable experience if you think about it. And there's a lot of parallels. While I don't play a ton anymore, I think there's a lot of parallels that I learned in putting myself out there and being willing to share something that was so deep and personal and special to me with others, whether that was in a solo context or sitting in an orchestra. So I do feel very grateful for that experience. I, I will say I graduated from college having some uncertainty about what I was going to do next and was lucky enough to join AmeriCorps, which is the domestic version of the Peace Corps, which helped me buy some time to figure, figure out what skills beyond the flute I wanted to develop. I was placed in Chicago 
where I worked with low-income families on financial literacy, opening their first bank account, helping with tax preparation. And I think there's a thread around both mission and frankly, the power of financial literacy and understanding that weaves later into my career. I also got my graduate degree at Northwestern University while I was living in Chicago. And then out of grad school, I went to work at a hedge fund. It was a really interesting moment for that. This was 2007, right as subprime was collapsing. So it was, it's an incredible experience, I think, always to walk into a kind of baptism by fire um, and almost wartime footing, right? I think it's an interesting moment as we think about even people who are graduating now or wrapping up grad school now. And as they think about the recessionary headwinds and some of the macro conditions that we're experiencing, I think there's a lot to be learned by starting your career in a bit of a fire like that. It builds resilience. It helps you understand what really matters. I think in business, this is very true. There's a first principles mentality that has to happen when you are experiencing pressures that are outside of your control, like the financial system falling apart in 2007, 2008. So I'm grateful for that experience. I loved cutting my teeth as an investor. You learn so much in terms of what great businesses look like. What is a good management team? What's a good supply chain? How much of your revenue should you reinvest in marketing and customer acquisition? And you see this across many different industries in a way that I think builds patterns. And so many investors rely on pattern recognition, but I think it's a valuable skill set for folks like me who later go on to become operators to really build and develop as well. So I did that for a while. Then I did strategy consulting focused on philanthropy, sustainability, social impact, arguably ahead of its time. I worked on building out the corporate practice for a boutique strategy consulting firm and then decided I was ready to wear an operator's hat. I think there's so much to be gained from investing and consulting, but I wanted that sweat equity to mean something. So I moved to Austin. If I'm honest, a big piece of that was wanting quality of life for my family as well. We had a one-year-old. I loved living in LA, but at the same time, it was a harder place to raise a family. We spent an hour and a half commuting to relieve the nanny share every day. And I felt like Austin would be the right place to sort of build that next chapter. There's also a lot about Austin that's really compelling to build businesses, whether that's at the time, lower cost of commercial real estate than California and an incredible talent pool from places like UT and so many of the amazing tech businesses here. So I joined an early stage startup. I spent two years there. And after two years, the Bumble opportunity came along. And for me, that was a dream job. It was this high growth company with an incredibly compelling founder where they had clear product market fit. They believed in what they were building and they needed someone like me who could bring some of that pattern recognition from investing, from consulting, from operating to help build the infrastructure for scale, but to do it in a way that didn't collapse in on the magic of all of the things that early team had built. Uh, and as you said, I spent four years there, most of it as chief operating officer really thinking about building that infrastructure and helping us launch in new markets. I led our efforts to launch in India and we templatized a lot of those learnings for places like Mexico and Germany. And then I got to be critically involved in our process of being acquired by Blackstone and later our IPO. I was diagnosed with stage three cancer about three years in, out of the blue, no family history. And as it is for most people, that was a really... Um, pivotal moment in my journey. I feel very grateful. I am cancer-free right now. An amazing team of folks that I've worked with both here in Austin and also at MD Anderson. 
But I think from a professional perspective, it gave me an opportunity to reflect and think about what I wanted to do next. I was lucky enough to get to drive Bumble's IPO strategy while undergoing cancer treatment. But when I came back to the business and it was time to think about my next operating portfolio, I really felt a desire to go back and build again. I love that spot between product market fit and acceleration of scale. And I wanted to go do that for something else that meant a lot to me. And I realized upon further introspection that in spite of being probably scared to go into digital health because of my own health experiences, it felt like it was the only thing that rose to the same level of significance as relationships, right? At Bumble, we're bringing you the partner that could change the trajectory of your life. And at the same time, we're recalibrating gender dynamics and relationships. Like there was so much in that that checked the mission box for me. And it felt like health was the only thing that improves human condition to that extent. And so that's how I found myself at Found. We are focused on weight and really shifting both the broken narrative in the weight space and also the care delivery model by addressing underlying biology. So we give the clinician a seat at the table. We treat this as a health challenge, not a self-image one. We're really thinking about driving better outcomes for our patients so that they can live longer, healthier lives. So Sarah, your story is so powerful. And I, I there were so many pieces to that that I wanted everybody to sort of hear the whole trajectory. Because when we talk about sort of having that courage to show up, when we talk about resiliency, it's more than just you know any one of those pieces. You're, you're a perfect example from what I've read about you of somebody who every piece of your life has been a foundation for the next piece of your life. So I want to go through a couple of the things you said, because I loved the fact that you said, you know, you went to a music conservatory and conservatory and you, you know, majored in the flute. And here you are, you know, you, you, you helped take a, a very popular, you know, well-known company public. And now you're running this new, you know, uh, organization in the digital health area. And it's not what one would think of somebody who spent their early days studying music. So let's talk just a little bit about what you learn from being a musician at those high levels. You know, you said it's the discipline of practice, but it's got to be more than that. Let's talk a little bit about that foundational piece in your life. Yeah. Gosh, I you know, I love reflecting on it because college was such a cherished point in my life. And I'm watching my own kids go back to school, elementary school, and watching UT repopulate with students. And it does take you back. I feel like the discipline is a big part of it, yes. There's also a huge teamwork component to things like playing in an orchestra. It's not just reading the notes on the page, but it's like, how are we communicating them verbally to one another and operating in sync? And a lot of actually what I think about now as a CEO is like my role as the conductor. The actual music comes out of my team. It's all of these folks playing different instruments and operating in sync, but in parallel as well. And a great conductor sits back and lets the soloists sing, right? And they bring out the best in all the people around them. They really operate in a unique way in terms of celebrating the others on their team. And yes, they take the final bow, but a big part of that role is creating the conditions that enable everyone else to make the best music of their lives. And I think about that as my role as a CEO, right? It's my job to create the conditions that enable you to do the best work of your life. It's not my job to be the smartest person in the room, far from it. I actually want to surround myself with smarter, more experienced people than I am. And I want to do that in a way where the sum of the parts is so much greater than any of us individually. So I think that's an interesting lesson from, from music school as well. 
Well, I love that analogy of, of being the conductor. And like you said, the, the, the conductor is not the one who is, uh, you know, up there singing or, or playing those notes. Uh, they do get to take the bow at the end, but they really are the ones who, who sort of direct everything. And I think as CEO, I think that's a wonderful analogy. Next, you talked about being an AmeriCorps and working with, you know, low-income families. And, you know, as I listen to your, t- to your voice, as you tell the stories of your life, one of the things that comes through in that voice is, is one of deep compassion. And so what was it like in that AmeriCorps time? And, and what did you learn during that foundational level? Yeah, I, I'm grateful that AmeriCorps exists. I think it's a great option for folks like me who come out of school and aren't quite sure what to do next. And I think my curiosity has always led me. And, and I feel grateful that I've had the opportunity to write various chapters in my career. I think that to your point around compassion, part of what AmeriCorps is designed to do is enable you to live and work in the same circumstances of the folks you're serving. So your salary is at 105% of the poverty line in the city in which you're living. And, you know, I, I feel there's a lot about my upbringing that was solidly middle class in a great place like New Jersey that had wonderful public schools. But I also was raised by a dad who grew up in poverty. And I had an understanding of that experience. I had family that had exposed me to it. My dad did not graduate from college, but I feel really grateful that I had a grounding in my early career that exposed me to the broader considerations of how the world works and the disadvantages that are systemic in the systems in which we operate. And I am lucky that my dad saw his mom not know how to balance a checkbook. And so by the time I was in third grade, he had me reading the stock pages of the Wall Street Journal and tracking the companies that I was passionate about. McDonald's at the time, I remember being allowed to buy like one share. (laughs) And not everyone, most people don't have access to that kind of education as kids. And financial literacy is something that really makes our economy go around And I think that having the opportunity to help folks with their taxes, with their FAFSA, with opening their first bank account, with getting better educated around how these financial systems work, just helped build for me an understanding of the importance of financial literacy and also compassion for those that don't have it. And it's a big priority for me even to this day. So next was you were at a hedge fund and, you know, I've never worked at a hedge fund, but the image of the hedge fund is work, 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 go, go, go. And you said it was like baptism by fire and then sort of and sort of a wartime. What, what did you learn in, in, in that time of your life? <laughs> um, so I, I, love, I love that laugh, by the way. I love the laugh that came with that. Incredible learning experience. Some of the smartest people um, that to this day, I even continue to respect and admire I worked uh, at a hedge fund from Los Angeles. So we kept Wall Street hours, but in LA. So I was in the office every day by 5.30 in order to be there before the markets open. Talk about discipline. Um, <laughs> somewhat similar to what I learned in music school. I was also really into marathons and triathlons at that point, in part to like help uh, stay calibrated and keep my head above water. Uh, so I remember getting up very consistently at 4 a.m. to work out before I got to the office. So there was a big piece around, I think, both rigor and discipline for me personally. And then also uh, just learning everything I possibly could. I felt like I came in, for example, with an understanding of things like how a bill becomes a law. You know, I have a master's degree in public policy. And this was the time when 
TARP and TELF, and you really saw government intervention in the financial ecosystem in a different way, I felt like I had value I could add on that front. At the same time, I was literally learning how to read three state, three financial statements, right? I didn't know what a cash flow statement was before I started at a hedge fund. So I was reading accounting books on the weekend to get better educated. And I think for me, this combination of having the curiosity and discipline to keep learning, to stay curious in order to elevate myself continually that helped when I was at the hedge fund and helped when I was in consulting and helped when I was learning to operate. I think those are the kind of qualities that can support you in whatever direction you take your career. So, and then your next phase was working for a strategy consultancy. And, and that one sort of tickled the back of my brain because I, in, in my current role, I'm, I'm very busy trying to figure out sort of the strategy of the next phase of the organization for the Austin Technology Council. And, and I wish maybe I had spent time at a strategy consultancy because every day I'm trying to figure out and, and, and learn strategy. What, why do you think that that time being so focused on strategy was so important as a foundational layer in your life? Great question. I think that a big part of strategy is being able to pull up and look at the bigger picture. And what can be so hard about operating is that you are just like up to your nose every day in execution in just the stuff that needs to get done. And the discipline of being able to pull back and think strategically and map things out for a longer range and not just map them, but then communicate them effectively. I think one of the greatest things about consulting is it really creates discipline around communication, effective communication at all stakeholder levels. A lot of my clients were CMOs and I feel like learning to communicate to a marketing leader why it may make sense for them to divert budget that typically would be used for things like I don't know, print advertising, and instead invest that in social impact initiatives that could generate a similar ROI in terms of product trial or customer loyalty, making that business case was really important. So it's both the development of the strategy and then the articulation of it that I think is a crucial skill set for any business leader. And I feel grateful that I got that time almost in a vacuum as a strategy consultant to figure out how to build that muscle. And now it's definitely one of the things I deploy incredibly regularly in my current role. So now the next jump is into the world of startups. So let's talk a little bit about what you learned in that first startup on that foundational level. So I was the very first employee beyond the founder. It's a founder I respect and admire. He's based here in Austin as well. We were building something in the clean beauty space. And I think this is probably well understood about startups, but you kind of don't know until you do it. You spend one moment literally setting up payroll, taking out the trash, and then the next day you're building the supply chain from scratch with the go-to-market strategy, the first tagline, the logo. You get such breadth of experience and there can be no preciousness to it, right? This is not a well-oiled machine that you're stepping into where there's 30,000 other people who each have a defined role. You literally get to touch just about everything. And I think I've been the kind of person throughout my career that loves to have my fingers in just about everything, not in a, uh, not from a place of needing control or ownership, but just because I get so energized by all of the different pieces that contribute to a great business. And as a result, I've always been one of those people that doesn't really have a job description on paper and throws myself where the business need is. And I think when you can find alignment between what juices you and what the business needs that's where the magic happens. 
And I think startups enable that probably with greater velocity than a lot of scaled businesses do because the set of challenges just changes so regularly. And then the opportunity to go to Bumble and, and Bumble, we all know, was a company that, that grew very fast, was able to, to be sold, was able to have an, have an IPO. What was the experience like at Bumble? And of course, we can't talk about your time at Bumble without talking about the cancer. So let's talk about that phase. Hmm. Yeah. So when I joined Bumble, it's funny, I think my first exposure to Bumble was probably because I was already married at the time, driving around Austin and seeing the billboards that said things like, be the CEO your parents always wanted you to marry and then find someone you actually like, which I, to this day, think is one of the greatest billboards. <laughs> so, you know, it caught my attention. I knew that there was this business in town and I eventually was able to kind of work my network to get connected into that team and was so blown away by their passion and commitment to what they were building, by what they had achieved to date. By the time I joined, it was probably... 30-ish people operating out of the buoy in downtown Austin. Very shortly thereafter, moved to an office um, kind of close to where I live now, actually in central Austin. And I think what I was so impressed by there was Whitney's clarity of vision around what was unique and differentiated. So many people said to her, isn't the dating market crowded enough? There's OkCupid, there's Tinder, there's plenty of fish. And she recognized early on that no one had built with women in mind. I think there's a great business lesson in there, which is like really know the problem you're trying to solve. And if you have crystal clear clarity on that, no matter how crowded the marketplace is, you will find your audience. Now you need to make sure that there's a meaningful enough audience there. But of course, Whitney's realization was half the population had been ignored by dating apps. So there was definitely a meaningful Sam. Um, and then just commitment to always building with that user, with that value prop in mind. And I feel lucky, again, kind of coming back to the points around curiosity and wanting to touch all sorts of things. I got to put my fingerprints all over that business over the course of four years. And no two days were the same, especially given the velocity of scale and how many different problems we were trying to solve. I took particular joy in things like our international expansion, as well as the work we did and reinvesting in early stage startups and learning from what they were doing well and trying to think about cultivating the next generation of especially women, especially women of color for the LGBTQ community, investing in those leaders to kind of build the next um, generation of businesses. So I do feel lucky that I got to touch so many different things. So you said I was diagnosed three years in. And I, I feel very grateful that I had a leader like Whitney to be able to share that news with. She was one of the first people that I told. I recognize that not everyone facing a diagnosis like that has a supportive boss to be able to go to. And I was grateful that she used that, knowing me, knowing that I wanted to work, that I didn't want to be a full-time patient. She used that as an opportunity to help me rescope my role around the same time the Blackstone had come into the business and gave me a portfolio or a set of things to work on next that felt really energizing and felt like I could still give something intellectually, even though I was in this place where I had to carve out more time for treatment or I didn't have the emotional bandwidth to maybe manage as large a team as I had in the past. So I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of everything that, that we've talked about. And I have a couple of notes that I've wrote, written down that I want to make sure everybody listening pays attention to. And there were four points that came out of everything that you said. And that was 
recognizing patterns, I think is, is something that, you know, you have clearly done with that eclectic background. The second thing was about having effective communication. And I'm a really big believer in that. I think that being able to communicate properly is, is a great thing that can solve a lot of problems. And, and we just don't do a good job of that. My, my personal motto and one I'm trying to instill uh, with the Austin Technology Council is community collaboration and conversations, because mm-hmm. when we can have that effective communication within that community, I think we can solve almost all problems. The next thing that you talked about was making sure that you were you know, doing something and then that the company was unique and being able to differentiate. And that is so true. Otherwise, we just get caught in a sea of sameness. And in a sea of sameness, you never can stand out in the way that Bumble did by having that, that women focus. Uh, it was unique and it was different. And therefore, I think was a huge part of that growth. And then a couple of times you went back to this, this term of curiosity. And you know, I think that that opens up so many doors. And I think so often we, we fall into patterns where we, we silo ourselves off with people like us in, in the bubble that we're in. And yet the more diversity that we have, the more curiosity we have of that, the better we can do. So now let's look at where you are now as the CEO of Found. And let's, let's look at what have you learned from the whole journey that you take into this role as CEO? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I feel like I'm still learning each and every day, especially in the CEO seat. There... There's a lot that I'm grateful for. I, I'm still humbled each and every day by the people who sign up to work with us and want to invest the next chapter of their career here. I learned so much from each and every one of them. And I'm grateful that we've now scaled the team to, gosh, close to 300 people across our clinicians, our coaches, our corporate workforce. And that's really energizing and inspiring. I feel like there are, of course concrete skills that I developed at various portions in my career. Coming back to the points earlier around financial literacy, I do feel really grateful that between the AmeriCorps time and working in a hedge fund and being self-taught on some of these things, you know, I now have the ability to go out and raise funds and talk to investors and help them understand the value proposition of this company and why it will generate a great return on investment for them. I think that's an important thread for me. I also feel like this point around building a team, right? I think my job as CEO, and this comes from some work that I've done with my coach, is really to embody the vision, set it, propagate it, then to build an amazing team. And that's not just hiring people, but that's, again, creating the conditions that enable them to do the best work of their career. And then it's getting them the resources they need to do that amazing work, whether that's fundraising, whether that's unblocking things. So much of my job is facilitation and then getting out of the way. So I feel like there's a lot of that kind of tactical skill building. What does it take to make the jump even from another role in the C-suite to the CEO chair? I also think there's some really interesting parallels between the work I did at Bumble and the work we're now doing on weight. I think the narrative around weight in this country is broken and it's in need of a reboot in the same way the narrative around dating was broken and it left women out, for example. And I also think Bumble did an incredible job of taking what was kind of a staid industry. You know, not that many people talked about online dating 10 years ago. And now Bumble, among others, really transformed that conversation. I am very excited for us to shift the narrative around weight. I want us to thread the needle with things like body positivity and help people drive towards healthier outcomes, add years to their life, find joy in their body, 
I think there's a lot around narrative development and shifting stigmas that reminds me of dating that's necessary for this space. And I think the other point, and this relates to one, one that you were making around diversity of thought and curiosity, we have a value of build a bigger table. And what that means for us is how do you get the right diversity of perspectives to the table to drive the best outcomes? So that may mean diversity of thought. That certainly means diversity of lived experience, racial and ethnic backgrounds, making sure that we have underrepresented groups at the table. Strategically for us, that also means giving the doctor a seat at the table. So much of the conversation around weight has focused on image. It's focused on eat less, exercise more. We actually give the clinician a seat at the table and address this as a health challenge, not an image challenge. How does that change care delivery? And so I think that, again, it comes back to this idea of like, who do you get in the room? Who do you sit at the table? How do you broaden those perspectives? And it's my job to facilitate that, to build that team, to get them those resources and then almost get out of the way, right? And enable that magic to happen, which brings me back to that conductor story. And that's so much how I think about the role of CEO. Like you're not the one that's out there performing that solo front and center, but you're creating the conditions that enable the folks that are sitting around you to do the best work they can. Well, that is so awesome. So what is the future of Found? I know that you're a remote first company. So you live here in Austin. I know you have a lot of people who are here in our, in our community, but you're remote first, which means people are everywhere. And of course, in today's world, uh, you know, that is you know, that, that is an important, an important thing. So let's talk a little bit about remote first and how that's working for you. And then let's talk about what's next for FAP. Yeah. So look, I think the pandemic has taught us so much in terms of how we create the best conditions that enable people to work. And I think it also shined a spotlight on the need for flexibility, whether that is the place that you live or the hours that you work. I think employers that recognize that employees are whole people, as I said, I'm a mom, there's a massive juggling act that goes into all of this. I think recognizing that and creating flexibility where possible can enable us to hire some amazing people. We've been able to recruit, for example, world-class engineers who didn't want to live in Silicon Valley. They wanted to live in the middle of Oregon or Montana. And now we have a shot at landing those folks because we're willing to create a remote first environment. It works for us in our business. And I don't know that that's universal, but we are operating in digital health. We utilize telehealth to serve our patients. Our member base is by nature distributed. So it makes sense for us that our workforce is. I love a good brainstorm and whiteboard session as much as anyone. And so I do find a lot of value in having folks that are in Austin or driving distance to Austin. And I will also say, we don't do this to save money. A remote first strategy should not be about saving money on commercial real estate because I promise you, you will spend that much and then some on travel and entertainment and getting in the same place for a certain amount of time for coordination, planning, brainstorming, et cetera, and cultivating team building and culture. So it really should be a strategic decision that enables your business as opposed to a cost-cutting measure or something that you feel like is only born out of necessity. And I think because we're in the sort of waning days of the pandemic, business leaders now have the opportunity to think about that and decide what's the right setup for their workforce and for their member base. And what's the future hold then? So we're very, very, very focused on clinical efficacy. And I think that's the most critical thing when you operate in digital health. 
Trust is everything. Getting to great outcomes is everything. We've invested heavily in our clinical leadership. That is both our doctors and behavioral health specialists, things like health coaches. So we're really working to scale that team and to enable them to do amazing evidence-based work and deliver outcomes for members. We raised $100 million in December, which was really exciting for us. And we're being prudent and thoughtful about how we're investing that in the growth of the business going forward. We think that things like weight and health are pretty permanent needs for folks. And weight is the front door to a larger conversation around health. And people developing resilience, adherence, routines around weight management leads to better outcomes on other health fronts as well. As little as 5% body weight loss can reduce hypertension, hyperglycemia, reduce or reverse prediabetes. So we're really trying to think about how we help people make lasting and sustainable change because they're manageable changes. They're not crash diets. They're actual lasting changes supported by biological intervention that drive people to a healthier outcome. And really our members' health is our first priority. And that's what we designed the program around. So if people want to find out more about Found, how do they find what you have to offer? Visit joinfound.com or follow us on social at joinfound. Nice, nice. Well, Sarah, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us here. Any final words for the audience? No, thank you so much for the time. This was a blast. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And I'm so inspired by all that you're doing to try to build into the entrepreneurship community and really celebrate this special culture we have here in Central Texas. Well, and Sarah is going to be the featured keynote speaker at the Austin Technology Council CEO Summit on October 17th. So if you enjoyed this interview and you're a CEO who lives in Central Texas, or beyond. We'd welcome you if you wanted to fly in. If you're a C-suite executive, you are welcome to attend the CEO Summit on October 17th, 2022, where you're going to hear more from Sarah Jones Simmer. Again, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. You know, I've got to thank the sponsor of this episode. This episode, like all of them, is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. And I know that many of the listeners think, hey, I want to have a podcast. Well, for an exclusive offer, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast joy. Now go out there and make waves in business yourself and have some fun along the way. But as you find your way through your business career, be sure that you find a way to positively impact the people who you encounter every day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.